0: It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today, our guest is Jason Burt. He's a history teacher, a historian. He's the grandson of a World War II veteran, Richard Burt, who is a Juilliard-trained trumpet player and was a lead trumpet player of an Army Air Force band stationed in the Philippines as a part of the 746th Far East Air Force Band. And Jason, our guest, spent a great deal of time of his uh, past couple of years putting together a project that involved a -a one-of-a-kind recording made by this Army Air Force Band during their Philippine campaign. And on that note, we welcome you, Jason, to the program. Thanks for having me, Alan. So this is quite the project that we stumbled upon in looking at some of the social media that you had posted and other uh, press that you received on it, and were fascinated by the subject. And we thought, you know, this would be great. Our listeners really need to hear this story, because it's a great one. And there's so many aspects and facets to it that make it uh, truly very, very interesting. And I'm glad that you're willing to share this story with us today.
0: Absolutely. Anytime I get a chance to talk about Grandpa and his uh, wartime band, it's, it's always a good day for me.
1: Let's start out by your discovery. I know that you had somewhat of a relationship with your grandfather when you were younger, and you knew that he was a trumpet player because I believe in looking at some of the material that has been written about you and your story that your grandfather even played for you while he was in the house when you were younger.
0: Yeah, growing up, we were, he lives a couple blocks over, and uh, he would watch my brother and myself uh, as we were growing up, and you could hear him down the hall playing his trumpet, and it was always just uh, an afterthought. It was He did it so often, he loved his trumpet. You, you could tell that even when you were a kid, but uh, for me, I was the jock in the family, and it was just always, I just assumed everybody's grandpa could play the trumpet like that. So yeah, he was always playing his trumpet when we were kids, and we're a very musical family.
1: So were there any jazz influences in the family that were consistent, uh, other than your grandfather? No, not for his his influence uh, as far as jazz goes was the biggest
0: because he was that was his era the big band and uh, all those guys so any of those trumpet players from back then Louis Armstrong any of those guys well, those were all his influence that came off on me and uh, my family as we grew up and that's kind of how we all got into jazz and, and big band as we grew up.
1: I I don't know if he was drafted into service or if he volunteered for service, but he didn't start out necessarily going straight to some sort of a band ensemble in serving his time during World War II.
0: That's correct. So he was drafted in 1943 and he was sent to a basic training at Camp Kearns, which is uh, outside of Salt Lake City. And, uh, he was slated to do uh, less desirable jobs. He was, he says in his recording, uh, his narration, that he was going to be a, uh, a latrine technician. He was always quite a storyteller. That's one of his. I always, after when this whole thing started, the, this feeling came over me that uh, he was kind of grooming me for this project my whole life because he repeated all these war stories my whole life, so I've got them kind of ingrained in my mind. <laughs> but uh, a buddy of his who uh, he was in the orchestra with over in college, uh, saw him there and he was in the band at Camp Kearns and, uh, got him pulled to be in the band over there. And that's, that's how he got into, uh, the, the military band was just this happenstance of his friend being there and already being in the band. Uh, otherwise he'd have been slated for other things in life.
1: Now, I know that after his time in the service and after World War II, he had actually gone to Juilliard at that point and took up further musical studies. But prior to that, or prior to his service, had he been a trained trumpeter or was he in a band uh, prior to the military service? Yeah, yeah, he was. So his whole life, he
0: was musical. He started on the Bugle and played trumpet over in Salt Lake City. And music was his life. I think he knew that even from when he was at a young age. Because uh, he didn't even learn to read until he was in high school, but he could play music and read music. So he he started off it, when he was about six or seven years old playing the trumpet or bugle. Didn't graduate high school, but was good enough to get a trumpet scholarship at university in Utah. And that in between time when he was after Pearl Harbor, and before he uh, was in the service, uh, he started his own band and they actually played over uh, gigs over in. Uh, the hotel that's in Bryce Canyon national park. Uh, he worked over there and had his own band. And so then he was drafted. So he did things like that. And he, he'd always wanted to do music and pursued that kind of thing. And after, uh, Juilliard, uh, he was with the Drake, Simf- or the Drake symphony orchestra in Iowa and the Des Moines symphony orchestra. And he realized that that kind of lifestyle was, uh, 24 hours a day. And he wasn't, he made the decision then that he was going to teach music after that because he wanted more time with his family.
1: And, you know, I, I, I don't know how much uh, our listeners might know about this, but that's a really significant role to play uh, in the war uh, or in the service because it's it's morale building, it's a, a touch of home for service men and women that are away from home or on foreign land, and it's nice to have that uh, little bit of home brought to you to give you a moment to step away out of the wartime role and just regroup, if you will. Absolutely, those guys.
0: You know, when when they talk about the war and everything, everybody wants to hear uh, the war stories, and then you you hear very little about the actual band and, and what their role was. And, and one of the the goals that I had when I started this was for people to hear more about uh, what band units, uh, what what their role in the war was, and and the service they provided, especially guys. Uh, that were playing for uh, frontline uh, soldiers and Marines and sailors and all those guys. So it's it's definitely a touch
1: of home and a moment of clarity, and it gives you a little uh, respite from the daily life of being a soldier. And, and there's no question about it, because being an Air Force uh, veteran myself, I, I can tell you, uh, having served through Vietnam, oftentimes uh, you would see either USO ensembles or bands Or in my case, uh, being with American Forces Radio and TV, we were there and we were not that far from the front line and uh, we could hear battle going on. And oftentimes uh, you look at uh, things like the story of your grandfather, where just yards away, there was action going on while they're playing music.
0: Yeah. That's, that's one of the, the first time I heard that I was 21 years old. I don't, I don't know why he never told me that growing up, but it was on this recording he made in the eighties. And so, uh, one of the first shows this band played was on Leyte Island with a USO group, uh, coincidentally, and they were setting up and he, he sets the scene really well. There's blown out palm trees and there's soldiers climbing to put spotlights on these things. And they just have, uh, A makeshift stage so he sets the scene really well and the show starts they're playing uh from the musical hell's a poppin with the uso group and all of a sudden fighting breaks out where the ravine is our first rehearsal was
2: with a uso group doing a stage show called hell's a poppin we did that show in three different locations on three different evenings the last being up at the front and that's the only way i can describe it it was an area where all the palm trees had been blown in half. All of the men who came to see the show came in their ponchos with their helmets on and their rifles sticking out. Across the ravine and on the up, uh, other side of the mountain, there would be sounds of automatic weaponry, and you could see the flashes every once in a while as that the shooting made. So. Even while we performed on this little plateau, on the other side of the ravine, there was action going
0: on, evidently. And it's an incredible thing to think about. One of your your first shows as a a overseas band is interrupted by fighting going on directly behind you. It it would be intimidating to me, but the band continued to play and and finished the show.
1: The show must go on. but well, more importantly, you know, you got to keep up the morale of the troops and give them a, a little bit of a break and a breather and, and a touch back with humanity and say, you know, it's going to be okay. And you hear a song that evokes a memory or a, a thought of your girlfriend or your boyfriend back home or your husband or wife or your significant other. It, it's really a key role in playing an important part of the time within the service In looking at this story, the music that was played, which was more than 75 years ago, it was recorded with what would, by today's standards, be very old, outdated kind of technology. The recordings that you have come upon and made part of your life's work for the time being is it was done on a a wire recording device. And not too many people know what that is. So it was uh, recorded on wire, and he
0: talks about the the making of it, and I've I've spoken to him about it. I mean, it's hard to imagine, especially when you grew up with today's technology. And uh, he's also written the the records that these recordings I found were on also have uh, written notes on them about how it was recorded. And so they had this limited equipment, and the only reason it was even recorded was because there was these two uh, guys that came through with uh, special services who had a wire recorder. And that's the only reason this even happened. So uh, they decided they were going to record their usual set. They set the wire recorder up with the mic in one tent, their performance tent, and it ran all the way across the compound to another tent where these two guys were operating the actual wire recorder. So it was quite a setup. It wasn't like setting your iPhone down and hitting record like today would be, but it's to even understand that stuff. It's just unbelievable how they did that. And with uh, the mic that they had was meant for only uh, the singer. And so they didn't know if they were going to, if it was going to pick up all the sounds of this orchestra, even when they were playing. My grandpa uh, brought the wire recordings home and had them pressed to a 78s uh, vinyl at the local radio station in Salt Lake when he got home.
2: What was recorded on wire in the Philippines was transferred to four 32-inch discs, the type that were used in radio before the advent of tape. And you could put a half an hour of uh, recording on each disc, on each side of the disc. The masters got a little mildewed being stored in our basement at 406 Oakley Street I guess there was created a great deal of surface distortion the little microphone just couldn't handle such a wide variety of sound and so there was distortion from that too um, my 78s that I took these recordings from that is the discs that I have are well worn and so there's a lot of scratchiness from that
0: I feel badly about this, so much for excuses. It's the the technology, it's it's another interesting part of this story, how it originated.
1: So after he had come out of the service, like you said, he brought this wire recording home and had it transferred to vinyl. Did you know that those vinyl discs had actually existed uh, or was it uh, not until later that you discovered them after his passing? Uh, we knew they
0: existed. So in the 80s was the last time he had them out. And I was two at the time, I want to say, when he had them out and made the, the his narration recording, which is the last track on the album. And he took two songs off of there for this recording, Trumpet Rhapsody and Moonlight in Vermont. Those are the only two he took off. And he put those on a CD for his own posterity. That was just for the family to listen to, for, for them to... And he picked those songs because I think his solos on there or more pronounced. So he had solos on those ones that were pretty pronounced, and those that's why he picked them. And so we knew about those our whole lives, and I'd heard the Moonlight in Vermont and the Trumpet Rhapsody when I was about 20, and he gave me a CD. But I, I think the location of the records, I knew they were around, uh, but we never found them. And I think that where they were were just uh, too distant of a memory as he aged, and he just kind of forgot where they were. And uh, we came across them after my grandma had passed a year or two after he passed.
1: So walk us through this period of discovery with you going into the attic after your grandfather had passed uh, and finding these. What were your original or first thoughts when you found them? Uh, uh, Relief, mostly, because I
0: knew they existed and I wanted to find them. Like I had no idea what I was going to do. I definitely didn't envision what's going on right now. But there was this feeling of relief of okay, I found this piece of history that I've always wanted to find. We had a uh, we had a great relationship growing up, but uh, as a kid and as a, a young person in high school who who finds out his grandpa was in World War II, you always want your grandpa to be that guy that just ran across enemy lines and and won a Medal of Honor or won the war on his own and all that stuff. It's just, but. when I was 20 is when I wanted to find these records because uh, that's the first time I really heard my grandpa play like I heard him my whole life play but I never actually sat and listened to him I was just hearing it it was just noise to me and when I heard Moonlight in Vermont it was like the first time I'd ever heard my grandpa play the trumpet
1: There was also another one, Perdido, which is a a great Latin tune. Uh, How uh, did that one stand out? That
0: was such a treasure for me to find. I mean, I hadn't heard any of the other songs. And when I first put them on, uh, I had them for months before I even listened to them because uh, my grandma had just died and I didn't know what I was going to do with these yet. So I had no idea if they were going to work and I didn't have a record player. Uh, That's not something you readily have typically these days. But uh, a colleague of mine... Uh, loaned me his record player because he's a, a vinyl junkie and i put him on and the first song that i heard was Perdido, and he's got a trumpet solo on that one but it's it's, it's brief it's maybe about five to eight seconds Feeling I got was just incredible. I mean, it's like grandpa's in the room and, and it's really, I like that one more than his other ones. It's it's a, it's an upbeat song and he's just, it was young grandpa at his best. He had such a flair for playing the trumpet and it really shows on that solo. And so ever since then, I'd wanted to find these records. And so when I finally found them, it was just this feeling of relief and like I, I needed to do something to uh, continue his musical legacy because I'm, I, 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 I grew up the jock in the family. Uh, I played basketball my whole life. Nobody forced me to do it, play an instrument or even read music, but everyone else in my family really does. And so this was always something I wanted to do and I needed to do to have a contribution to his musical legacy because it was never going to happen musically because I can't even read music.
1: <laughs> so you took on a project at this point. Uh, what what was the, the story or the inspiration behind that? What, what do you hoping to achieve by this. Uh, I I know that you've taken the time to bring it to uh, sound masters, audio engineers, uh, some of them, I believe, were even uh, Grammy-awarded sound engineers, and you had these recordings converted to the best possible state that they could be in so that you could release them.
0: Yeah. So the original, the original idea was, you know, maybe I can just honor these guys by uh, creating an album and maybe we can put it on the shelf at the world war II museum or somewhere where people like that would, would be interested. And it really just evolved into this. uh, You know, it's a pretty unique item. Maybe we could do something special and it really evolved into this. What could we do something special to get them recognition for their efforts shine some light on some big band and jazz genre. And it it turned into, well, what if we could make these amateur musicians into a platinum selling artist with this uh, recording that they made in a tent 75 years ago. And so the idea came along to partner with the USO with this album, because that's the, the, the group they played with in their first show on the front lines and we were going to raise some money at the same time for USO and because they really share the same goal as the band and trying to boost morale of service members overseas. And so it turned into that and trying to get these guys recognition for their war efforts and things like that. And then it evolved into some other aspects of like award winning just because of the uniqueness of the album and the history behind it and uh, what all is actually on this album and how it came about and, and how it was recorded and how it survived 75 years. So it has a lot of history to it too. And so uh, I was only gonna trust it to uh, someone who was gonna be at the top of their field. And it, it came down to the guys down at Lurtz and Mastering. And those are the guys that have some Grammy awards to their names. And uh, them and uh, another sound engineer that I met all worked on this album and we're all very proud of it. And we feel like we can make a run for uh, a Best Historical Album Grammy with these guys uh from World War 2 these veterans.
1: So you you put out an album and it's called Sentimental Journey. Uh and uh, how did you come up with 11 tracks? Uh, it, it sounded like it initially that uh, a lot of the music was very limited in its scope. How did you get 11 tracks out of it?
0: You know, I wasn't sure how many there were going to be or how long they, any of them were. There's there's 10 tracks that are music that are actual songs and uh One track is my grandpa's narration that he made in the 80s. And that one's about 28 minutes. There's a lot of good stories on there. And there's the the opening. In the 80s, my grandpa opened that CD that I was talking about with a little intro to the two songs where he uh, mentions, he says, let's begin with these uh, two songs uh, created in the, or these special recordings made in the Philippine Islands." Let's begin with these special recordings on
2: wire That were done in the Philippine Islands in 1946, Moonlight in Vermont and Trumpet Rhapsody.
0: As I was figuring out how to configure the album uh, I knew I wanted to incorporate that too because it kind of announces where it was made and and, uh, the first two songs are Moonlight in Vermont and Trumpet Rhapsody. I don't know how how they survived that longer how we got uh 10 songs to survive 75 years on these records but uh there's 10 songs and uh two of my grandpa uh introducing the album and and talking about his wartime experience with the band so a total of uh i'd call it 11 tracks The, the the first one's more of just an intro that's 10 seconds long but it adds a little something to the recording for sure
1: and this, this recording is really, from what I understand, the only known recording uh, of a band playing uh, in World War II in this particular uh, campaign. Yeah, in this kind of a setting. So I've, I've researched this
0: and it's I haven't found any. So I, I, I like to say it's the only known because I don't know for sure. Uh, the Army could probably shed the best light on that but it's probably not on their uh list of things to do to get back to me on something like that but as far as uh it's it's i've looked into i've the world war ii museum was really interested and they hadn't seen anything by like that especially a whole album's worth um this was a band that uh, spent time on the front lines and front line bands they just didn't have the equipment so on Leyte, they were on the front lines and by the time they got to manila they're at the uh, the Far East Air Force Headquarters. So they had a few more perks when they got to Manila, uh, but nothing super spectacular. It, it wouldn't be like uh, being in a studio stateside or anything, like or, or being in, in Glenn Miller's situation. Uh, the, the only reason this even happened was those two guys I mentioned earlier that just happened to be coming through the headquarters uh, with uh, their, their wire recorder. So... Uh, Frontline bands just didn't have the access to recording equipment to do something like this. So it was all very coincidental.
1: So you have this uh, release that's now out. When, when did it actually uh, come out? Uh, we scheduled it for release on Veterans
0: Day of uh, 2020. So it came out last November.
1: And how can people have access to it? if you want to access
0: it a uh, few if, if you stream things you can stream it on any of the major platforms It's on spotify and pandora and apple music and all the big players in, in streaming and if you want to uh, purchase the album digitally you can go to the band's website uh, 746feaf.com we're uh, working on the cds and the vinyl with it if you go to the the band website and actually buy the album uh, another treat my grandpa came home with that really kind of adds to this project is there's uh, about nine minutes of film of the band, he and the, the band out in the Philippines. So you get some World War II footage of the actual band. And uh, if you buy it digitally, it comes digitally. And we're working on getting a a, a DVD to go along with the CD if you, if you want to buy the CD. So it's, it's, it's pretty unique in that sense too that it comes with World War II footage of the band actually Uh, practicing in their tent and things of that nature so it's a pretty special thing to have when i first started this and started working with these guys i thought i thought today's technology could erase everything but i'm almost kind of glad they cleaned the difference between what the the records sound like and what they put out is is incredible even though there's still vinyl sounds it's if you listen to it on a soft volume the vinyl sounds and it took me forever to figure out which what the title of this album was going to be and i settled on sentimental journey not not only because it's a a song on the album, but because if if you have it on that volume and you hear the vinyl sounds and kind of close your eyes, it, that's really what it takes you on is a sentimental journey. It, you close your eyes and it's almost like you're in the Philippines and you're in this crowd listening to this band who's there to boost the morale of all the soldiers, sailors, and airmen
1: that are out there in the Pacific. So it's it's a special recording and it's got a great piece of history to it. So when you finally had this all put together, and it was sent to you for the first time, and you sat down and listened to it. What kind of an emotional experience was there?
0: Uh, it was any time I sit down, especially the first time I sat down and listened to these. My grandpa was such a great guy. He's my favorite person in the world. And to hear him play the trumpet, especially in his early 20s and with something World War II and history related, because that's really my thing is history and, and World War II, it's like my own little private concert and grandpa's not really gone is how I like to put it because I mean his he he may physically be gone but his music is here and, and it really is a special thing to have and and be able to listen to and and share that kind of stuff with grandpa even though I never learned how to play an instrument or anything like that I've always appreciated his musical talent and and what he left behind
1: Well, Jason, I appreciate your spending the time with us today to tell us the story behind these recordings, the story of Richard Burt, and how you have preserved a legacy and a recognition for the 746th Far East Air Force Band.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I love to come and talk about Grandpa, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with historian and educator Jason Burt. For more information about this, visit 746-THFEAF.com. We'd
2: like to thank Ben Cedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song.
0: Join us next week for another informative episode of All That's
2: Jazz. If you like today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app Including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.